Hi, this is Chris Sarandon, and welcome to Cooking by Heart, where we revisit the vivid memories of the food we grew up with, and more importantly, the people and the stories attached to that time in our lives. Today's episode is a very, very special one for me, first because we're celebrating Valentine's Day, and more importantly, because my special guest is my Valentine for over 30 years, my wife, Joanna Gleason. As many of you may know, she is a Tony Award-winning actress, having originated the role of the baker's wife in Into the Woods on Broadway, as well as winning a Theatre World Award for her role in the musical I Love My Wife, just two of her many acclaimed Broadway appearances. She's also known for her film work in Mike Nichols' Heartburn, Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors, and Hannah and Her Sisters, as well as the films Mr. Holland's Opus and Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights. Her television career has included stints on The West Wing, Friends, and about a hundred other appearances. Oh, and uh, by the way, we fell in love during the time I was playing her love interest as she starred in the ill-fated Broadway musical Nick and Nora. Her debut feature film as a writer and director, The Grotto, just won Best Feature Premiere at the Heartland International Film Festival and is an official selection at four more festivals so far. Welcome, welcome, my dear Joanna Gleason. Surrender. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hello. And happy Valentine's Day, my love. And to you. All right. So uh, I usually start this show, as you probably know, uh, with uh, the question about Providence, where we're from, because it has so much to do, of course, with what ends up being, you know, so much part of our childhood, our food memories, etc. So where were you born? I was born, contrary to the bad version of Wikipedia and right. you know, the, the who puts up these things, uh, I was born in Toronto, Canada. Hmm. Um, my folks had been born in Winnipeg and moved to Toronto, where I was born, My and my brother was born. Right. And uh, so... What's your earliest memory of sitting around the table with the family? <laughs> my earliest memory was tormenting my young mother by not eating. <laughs> oh, <really>? On <laughs> yeah. hunger strike? Yeah, I went on a hunger strike. I think I was, uh, I must have been, you know, four. I mean, old enough to know that I was torturing her. <laughs> <laughs> right. so, yeah, no, I, I literally, my mother had invented some, or, or was part of a, a group of mothers who had something called the clean plate club, you know, like we are all members of the clean plate club is a way to get your kid to eat. You mean there was a song? Oh, yeah, there was a song, there was a song and everything. So my little brother with his chubby little face, Richard, had no problem eating anything that was put in front of him. But for some reason, some mother, daughter, you know, right. whatever um, playing out there, I uh, I refused to eat. I, I, I went on a, a clean, just a clean hunger strike for about two weeks and and what was the, what was the reaction of your your mom your dad uh, when you did this well see dad was working dad was working he was um he was down in new york city trying to get work while we were up in toronto so maybe it was you know where's dad i'm not gonna i'm not gonna <laughs> eat until dad comes home so anyway my dad was working a lot in new york city leaving us my brother and me um ages four and two with my mom alone in toronto she was very young. She was, I think, about 26 or something at the time, mm -hmm. 25 or six with two kids. And 
So I stopped eating as a protest about something. And so the upshot was my grandmother, my, my mother's mother, Goldie. Mm-hmm. That shit crazy Goldie. Right. I remember this description quite vividly. <laughs> um, she, she somehow cajoled me into starting to eat again you know, rolling up little pieces of bacon in the pancake and doing the thing that, and I started eating again because I also didn't have the, you know, the attention span at four years old to keep this up. Mm-hmm. But my first memory of food was not eating. And then when we had more grandparental uh, interaction, my dad's mom, Nana Rose and Grandpa Morris, uh, they'd come around or Nana Goldie would come around or Uncle Bob, my dad's brother and his four, eventually four kids, when we started to do more family gatherings, that I got a sense of what the family food was. And the family food was, it was, how shall we say? It was sufficient, but not particularly... Appetizing? Appetizing. Although the Jewish food, the, I remember sweet and sour stuffed cabbage rolls and noodle kugel. And the way uh, my grandmother roasted a chicken. And potato latkes, you know, at... The, the fun foods, because there were festivities around them, there was, there was Passover. I love Passover. I love all the food at Passover. Mm-hmm. I like, yeah, I like a filter fish with horseradish. I'm one of the few. Oh, oh you make the face every time I bring it home. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. So bitter herbs. Bitter herbs is a piece of parsley, you know, just suck it up. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> just have a little, have a little um, culture. Uh, so we, we, my mother also, my mother's relationship with the kitchen was this. Dad was away working a lot. I mean, when we were in Toronto, he came down to New York. When we all moved down to New York, he uh, got a, created a, a show and got a job and moved to L.A. for a, a year. So there was always this kind of sadness around mealtime because mom was missing dad. Yeah. And so her default, you know, her default settings were kind of either to pick up stuff you know, pick up um, fried chicken or, or something. Yeah. Or try to yeah. make one of, of two dishes she made. And one was green fettuccine noodles um, with a, with a chicken breast, you know, on top. And uh, no dressing, no, no sauce or anything. Must've been a sauce and, or hamburgers made with, this is before hamburger helper. They would make something called, my grandmother called it kaklaten or something. It had a name like boom, boom, and, and, and had the atomic weight of, you know, boom, boom. They were, it was, it was just hamburger you meat. You felt that way in your stomach as well, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, it was hamburger meat extended with breadcrumbs, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so those were the burgers. Right. Any any uh, uh, particular toppings that you liked when you were a kid? Did you like, were you a ketchup? Were you no, a- I was not until this day. I'm not a ketchup girl, except sometimes on fries. I was a mustard and sweet relish girl. Ah, from the very beginning. From the jump. Yeah, this is a longstanding tradition in your personal family. Yes, and, and as you know, these many decades, I am the only one who eats that jar of uh, sweet relish. In our house. In our house, yeah. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Was there any big difference? Do you remember any big differences from the time you were in Canada and the food that was both available there and the food that your your mom uh, put before you uh, and the when you moved to the States? We moved to the States. And when was that? We moved to the States when I was six years old. And I still had my border crossing card of a picture of me when I was six 
just as a postscript, I was trying to get a passport and I sent in, you know, they, they, I was, they needed a picture of your, you know, your border crossing card. And I was getting an American passport, a Canadian passport, something. I was renewing the Canadian passport. And the guy actually, I had to go in person and he said, who's this? I was 38 years old. He said, who's this? That was the picture of me at six years old. <laughs> I said, said, it's me. He said, you're six. <laughs> he said, you need to update this card. Anyway, uh, the food became different because in New York, my parents developed a circle of friends and we had family. We had family out in Brooklyn. And it was, and food was much more of a, there was more effort put into it. Yeah. And so the food, it, it, it expanded. And also it's New York. There's amazing Italian food. There's amazing Chinese food. There were great delicatessens, you know, with the sandwiches that were piled high. And somehow when we were growing up in Toronto, also my folks didn't have much money. It, it, it felt very scarce. You know, everything felt kind of scarce and spare. Was this a time when Toronto was less of a multi-ethnic city than it is now? Because now you can yeah. find Toronto. Oh, now Toronto's one of the great uh, cultural, it's also one of the great eating cities, yeah. you know, in, right. the, in the world. Yeah, yeah. But at that time, no, not so much. And because we're talking you know, 60 some odd years ago. Right. Um, but New York, New York City has always had the influx of every different kind of, you know, cuisine. And so we took advantage of that. We, oh my God, oh, picking up my dad at the train station in Pelham. Did he come into Pelham? We was commuting from uh, Mount Vernon and New Rochelle. We'd pick him up. There was the Pelham Chateau. Pelham Chateau hmm. was... And I, yes, I use the term loosely. Very French. Yeah. Very French, except it was, I think, Italian food. Then there was, then there was Tung Hoi. Tung Hoi was on the post road and that was the best Chinese food you could get. And then there was a place with a windmill that might still be there called Cooks or Ships. And it was just like all kinds of great American food. Oh, oh, Ships, Ships rings a, rings a bell. Yeah. I think, or or cooks or something, but it's a bit with a big windmill, and it's still, I think, on the post road in Mamer near America. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so then there was a kind of sea change in terms of the stuff that was available to your mom that she brought home to cook, uh, as well as eating out. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of it is that we'd pick up food and bring it home. We'd go yeah. to pick up dad and pick up food on the way home, or go or go to a restaurant. So the difference between eating out and eating at home was kind of the the border was very uh, movable. Yeah, it, yes. However, eating at home. Oh my God! We brought Chinese food home once, and my brother Richard must have been five years old, and I'm seven, and he put a gob of Chinese mustard in his mouth with an egg roll, and then he all he said was, "Would you please excuse me?" and <laughs> <laughs> and he walked out, and then from the other room we hear ah! <laughs> <laughs> eyes watering. <laughs> but it was so cute that you can please excuse me. Do you have specific memories about sitting around the dinner table? I mean, that's one of them, obviously. Any others as you can think of the, of incidents that occurred? Yes, very, very, very indelibly sitting around when Dad was home for dinner and not working, because he was either broadcasting something or taping something or, you know, or he, he right. was working in radio and television a great deal. When we were around the table, it wasn't about the food. It was about, tell me about your day. You know, what did you do today? And let's go. We're going to go for a hike on the weekend. It, it became, we also had a song my dad would sing. He'd go, here's to the four of us. We wish there were more of us. 
And I mean, ironically and not ironically, we did add my sister when they moved to LA. She got, she was born in 64, um, a kind of surprise bonus to the family. But we would sing this. We were a group. We played board games. We played a lot of board games. We listened to vinyl show tunes and classical music all the time. Dad, dad loved the family unit, knowing he was traveling so much. He loved to just like, let's do everything I didn't get to do as a kid. Let's play board games. Let's ask each other about our day. Let's wrestle. We have wrestling matches on the floor. You know, he was, he was trying to make up for a really for hard, yeah. hard scrabble youth that he had had. Right. Yeah. Right. Is that when the uh, crossword puzzle con- contest started? Yeah. My dad could do the New York Times crossword puzzle, let's just say Sunday, uh, the puzzle he could finish in about 25, 30 minutes and the acrostic he could do and the cryptic he couldn't do. He left that to me, but I would sit with him and I'd say, ask me anything, ask me anything. Like I'm going to know, right. but every now and then there'd be something easy, you know, something fairly easy. And I got hooked. And as you know, Sunday means I disappeared with the magazine section. And- the New York times magazine section disappears. I never see it again. Right. Yes, you do. <laughs> At any rate, so so now you're in New York. You're in New Rochelle first? Mount Vernon for a year and then New Rochelle. And then New Rochelle. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're how old from the time you came from Toronto until you left New Rochelle to go to California? Yeah, I was six when we, on the little picture on the border crossing card, I was six years old and we moved when I, I believe I was 11. Okay. So then you moved to Los Angeles. Yeah, we moved to Los Angeles to a series of rental houses right? because dad had created with his partner, he had created uh, Let's Make a Deal. And it was based in Los Angeles. So we drove across the country with um, our possessions and uh, my mother and Richard and I and dad. And then we had amazing adventures on the road driving across this country. I mean, any food adventures? Uh, well, Howard Johnson, uh, Howard Johnson's experience. Oh, yeah. Uh, this was the first time that I um, came close to a clam roll, and I thought, I, I love this. <laughs> a clam roll. Your first, your first intimate, uh, I- I- intimate. Uh... It's an intimate encounter with with a clam roll. Yeah, and and just dining across the country was thrilling because people brought you food. There were drive-ins, you know, where they'd bring the tray and they'd purchase the tray. And uh, these experiences were, were great um, because they were out of the ordinary because they took people out of their homes. And yeah. when you're on the road, when you're on the road and you've been sitting in a car all day, the comfort of somebody bringing you something that's mm-hmm. local, yeah, local and delicious. You know, I had never had really grits before. We didn't get exposed to a lot of like, you know, American cooking and America has minimum, you know, 10 regions of, of cooking, uh, each with its own kind of signature dishes. And, and that was part of the fun. Um, but definitely every time we were on the highway and we would see, you know, the orange roof and the turquoise building, and we'd know that we are, we are this close to a clam. <laughs> Interestingly, as Joanna knows, we just finished doing a, uh, an interview a wildly successful interview with Jacques Pepin uh, at the, a theater here in Connecticut. And uh, uh, Jacques worked for Howard Johnson's for a long time, and probably the results of his research in order to um, make the menu at Howard Johnson's uh, more palatable, 
um, more authentically fresh. Uh, mm -hmm. You were part of the uh, uh, the results of that. That <laughs> I would like to think so. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll exactly. thank him for that when we see him next. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So then you guys arrive in Los Angeles. You're 11 years old. Uh, did the food change there? Uh, it was the beginnings of the Mexican influence in food, mm. at least for me. It wasn't right. as ubiquitous and spectacular and varied as it is now, or, or as available as it is now. Um, but though it, it, was, it seemed so incredibly exotic, because we were raised in a very bland household. There was not a lot of spice. You know, it, the herbs, not even so much with herbs, but the spices, just not a thing. Um, so to to be introduced to flavors, the, the actual flavors that go into uh, the, the Mexican food was, I was tentative. We were very tentative about it at first, you know. Um, but I said, you know, if my brother can stand the, the Chinese mustard, he'll have no problem, <laughs> no problem with this. So Mexican food was available. Uh, and, and again, L.A. had uh, a food scene. I mean, the, the food in L.A. was, it's just, just sprawling and a huge place. There, there was, as I was in high school, as I got a little older, there was a section of L.A. called um, Olvera Street, which was part right. of the original Ciudad de Los Angeles. Right. Los Angeles. Right. But it had been very um, uh, kind of uh, touristified uh, by, by that time, you know. But, but... We would go down there. My friends and I in high school uh, would go down there, take the bus down, and it was stunning the color and the the sense in the air of the things cooking, the street food, and the music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this this explosion of expression was not something that we Canadians, you know, or especially my family, had grown up with. Nor were we comfortable, you know, we. I, it's, it's amazing that I ever opened my mouth to sing in public because we were raised to be, don't, you know, don't make noise, don't speak up, don't, you know, stay quiet and be well behaved. And, and part of LA, the, the kind of opening up for me was to go down and see people talking loud and laughing, eating, you know, these things that were so amazing. And you could eat street food, the vendors, the things, the churros, the nachos, everything mm -hmm. like this. Yes, it was touristy, but it was also uh, a, 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 not only benign, a thrilling assault on my senses. Mm -hmm. And I developed a great affection for the music, what that music made me feel like, and the language, and, you know, and the culture, and the people. It's just something about the openness and the availability of their affection yes. and, want, and wanting to share things was so antithetical to how we had been raised. Right. And this is, is this is something that we talk about often on the podcast. And that is, uh, and it's something that, uh, for instance, Anthony Bourdain has talked about. Uh, sadly, he's no longer with us, but he talks about the fact that food is about transformation. It's not only about um, the actual uh, eating of the food itself, its preparation, but also the fact that we take ingredients that are uh, available, unusual, whatever. But they're also, it, 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 what you're talking about now is essentially just not only the, it, it's about the personal transformation as well, yeah. how yeah. it changes you uh, as a result of 
the awakening here in your taste buds and in your 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 smell and in in, in the visual uh, mm-hmm. as well. It, it's quite extraordinary what happens to us and, emotionally. Well, absolutely, and it it either you know then then people can divide up into and we see it we see it now in the, in the rift in our society. You you either are threatened by these things you don't know. Mm-hmm. Fearful, demonize them, poo-poo them, minimize them, or or think of them as less than what you already know, or somehow, you know, not not up to yours, whatever. Yeah. Or you get your all your senses opened, your eyes and your ears and your taste buds and the sounds like that, and it, it's about it's about knowledge, exposure, and tolerance. And if you if you can absorb the fact that you are learning something about somebody. They are learning something about you. You have introduced them to you. They have introduced you to, to who they are at home, how they live. You know, it goes a long way into understanding it. We don't take the time. We, you know, we judge, we judge like this uh, often and, and dismiss what we don't understand or what we've never tried. And it's also the extraordinarily, what, beautiful thing about this country. And that is that the influx of other cultures and their food and their, um, uh, they're they're called the, you know the culture overall has profoundly affected all of us in a very positive way uh not only in terms of the the uh the industriousness and the entrepreneurship of the people who come here and work hard but also their culture and the food that it uh, it you know yeah that spreads out over the culture so yeah. then you're you're in los angeles you're exposed to this amazing new uh, sort of variety of food uh, any large changes that occurred then when you left home to go away to college, away to college, I say advisedly. <laughs> yeah, I went again because my parents were, my parents started with nothing really. And, and they were from Canada and, and they, they, dad became very successful. Right. But before that, he, he lived with a kind of scarcity mentality because he grew up that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so there was nothing kind of lavish about them. I mean, they've stayed in the same home for 55 years until they passed in the home. So the, when we moved into that home, um, there was the overwhelming sense of, okay. And, and by the way, they bought their house for $80,000, okay, in Beverly Hills, $80,000, right? Yeah. All the money in the world that they had betting on dad's career, which it paid off. They stayed in that house till they died. And during that time, their relationship, I could see mom wanting to, wanting to have, pe- they had people over a lot and wanting to cook, not just bring in food, wanting to make things. And she'd call me and I became, I became very good in the kitchen because she wasn't. She basically went through the kitchen to get out the back door, to go to her right. office. You know, that was her- so you weren't the sous chef, you were the de facto chef. I was the de facto chef when they wanted something special. And I, I, I was, I, we made, I, you and I actually did this. We made dinner parties for their friends. Yeah, right. Remember one night? I mean, Kirk Douglas was there, I think. And yeah, yeah. His wife. And so we were making dinner uh, because we love to do it. Because for me, for us, both of us, it's, um, it's, a, it's a presentational experience. It's a production. It's about casting the ingredients, you know, mm. putting them together, watching. Then it's about the presentation. And for me, it's like a complete performance in a way. It, it's very satisfying. Yep. Very satisfying for, for me to do that. So my relationship with food, I I guess I just 
ate to live at that point. And when I got to college, I was, I went to UCLA my first year so I could live at home. Not my idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then I insisted on going to Occidental College where I had been part of the summer program. My high school drama teacher said, we run this summer program at Occidental College. And I got to do play after play after play. And I lived in a dorm that summer all by myself, which was a creepy experience. Mm -hmm. Judy Collins album playing for company. And I was just alone in this big dorm. And then I went to Occidental College. And that's when food started to become a, a social thing. There was, uh, we had, there was a, a night when we'd have fondue parties. Remember fondue? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, <laughs> I, the fondue period. Yeah. The fondue period in the, in the, in, I guess the seventies. Yep. Seventies was the big pot of boiling cheese. Boiling cheese mixed with wine, I think. Mixed with a cheap white wine. All right. Bread, white bread, like a sourdough or something, is stuck yeah. on a forky kind of thing, and you get in the hot cheese, like the hot wine cheese, and you eat that, and then you drink the wine. And those were fondue parties. Yeah. Or you could have a chocolate fondue party, but we right. weren't so very exotic. Yeah, and then there was Ernie's, 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 which had fish stick Monday, all the fish sticks you could eat for a dollar forty nine, and you know when you have no money and you're in college and your folks aren't giving you money and they're yeah. just saying figure it out. Yeah. It was the fish. But so so food became a, ooh, let's do that. And, oh, it's Monday. We get to go to, to Ernie's. And and I lived on a lot of brown rice and honey is what I could make at home. And tuna noodle casserole. Mm-hmm. So, the, first of all, the, the interest in the theater, uh, in acting, started when you were relatively young, right? Very, yeah. Uh, what, middle school? Actually, my first experience was playing a Mexican street vendor when I was 10 years old. Olivera Street returns. Yeah, but this was in New Rochelle. Yeah, and yeah. It was a play called Cholula Celebrates. I remember this. It's a thousand years ago. <laughs> Great. Yeah, that, I know. And culturally inappropriately so, I was wearing the white peasant blouse and the big peasant skirt. And I think I spoke five words of Spanish at that time. No, I, I knew I was going to be in the theater. Uh, in high school, it became clear um, I was in the theater department, you know, was in all the plays. And uh, clearly that was also my major through college. Um, it was also about the fact that we had moved seven times, you know, my brother and I, my family, until we settled, until they settled in L.A. And different schools and always being uprooted. So theater was instant, instant family, instant community for a short time, you know, for however the rehearsal period and the performance period was. But you kind of hang on to the fact that even though you're, you know, you travel kind of like with your knapsack on your back from show to show, wherever you put down your roots with the others who are in the show with you, you've all had a commonality of experience of let's bond quickly. Right. And it happens very, very quickly. It Uh, happens very quickly. Yep. Yep. With actors, um, it's really quite an extraordinary kind of alchemy that takes place. Right. And it reminds me of uh, that great series we watched, Station Eleven, which is not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but it's about how the arts and about what what creative and theater people do to survive and how important they are to our survival. I was doing a show with Marlo Thomas and uh, the late Ron Silver and Olympia Dukakis at Rest Her Soul. And every Sunday it started. It was a hit. It was a comedy. It was called Social Security. Every Sunday 
I think I may have started it. I'm not sure. We decided to have brunch before the matinee. We would make it downstairs in the in the green room, in the basement. And it started with people bringing bagels and cream cheese and coffee, the cast and the crew, and, you know, wardrobe department. And then it got a little more elaborate. Some decorations here and there. Somebody brought in an electric frying pan, and we would make pancakes, and there'd be bacon. And, then, and suddenly Sundays were this, we can sleep a little later at home, get to the theater a little earlier, oh. and have this wonderful, you know, this wonderful brunch together. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned this because I'd almost forgotten it. Uh, I went into a show in New York, a Broadway show called The Light in the Piazza. Uh, when it was already running, I replaced somebody in the show. And there was a tradition of Sunday brunch uh, with Light in the Piazza at Lincoln Center. where I, I And the first Sunday it happened, and, uh, you know, all the cast brought something. Uh, and we'd all have brunch together before the matinee. And it was immediately... Uh, apparent to me that I was part of this family. Yeah. Uh, and it was over the food. Yes. Primarily. I mean, you know, the work obviously uh, engenders it as well. You know, when you're working closely with people quickly and, and under intense pressure, you, you bond. But the food was also very important. And interestingly, also, I just had a, a conversation with Hal Linden, whose uh, podcast is going to be on uh, Cooking by Heart soon. And Hal, his memory was he and his wife were on a tour and uh, it was Christmas time. They were, everybody was on the road. Nobody had any place to go. And so they had everybody up to their room and they made a particular dish that has remained in his family since then for now. Uh, I mean, Hal's in his nineties now it's probably yeah. 50, 60 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's something that's continued in his family since then. Well, you remember, and we've done this several times when, I was on the road in San Diego with Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and you came down and you made, and, and there would always be like one day off where we say, Chris is making chicken Chris. Yeah. And you'd make your chicken Chris, which is fantastic. You you can vocalize that. That's right. Which is fantastic, by the way. Thank you very much. Oh, you should tell them what it is. But then we would cook for for the, for the cast. It's, it's happened many times, actually, or, mm-hmm. or uh, some sort of meal, you know. Yeah. We, we'd get everybody up here on a day off. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think we should actually post Chicken Chris. Okay, all right. I was just thinking that, as a matter of fact. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I, I do want to cover, uh, because now we're sort of introducing the fact that you are uh, not only uh, have you had this food awakening when you arrive in Los Angeles, but also the fact that your uh, theatrical yearnings, uh, your uh, uh, love of performing, uh, and becoming, by the way, such an extraordinary and amazing performer. And I don't just say that because we're, you know, talking publicly, but because it's <laughs> something, you know, the admiration for which I've, you know, is has no bounds as far as I'm concerned. It's mutual. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You also had another awakening sort of midway through your career uh, with uh, French cooking and, and uh, preparing rather elaborate French cuisine. I did. Now, I was, um, <clears throat> life took various turns, and I ended up in New York uh, City, living in New York City again with my second husband. And I was not getting hired. I had done a Broadway musical. I, I was kind of known a bit, but then I had gone back to LA 
And now I was back in New York. It's, it, it, it's, I'm now in my 30s. And I'm auditioning and not particularly well. And things are not clicking for me. This is prior to Into the Woods. And there's a lot of time on my hands. And my then husband had been raised in France uh, for many years and was fluent in French. And I decided, well, I'm just going to buy every cookbook I can. And my job every day when I'm not looking for work is going to be to try this recipe or that recipe. And so I became, I really just kind of taught myself until at one point there was, um, was it Francois Millot? Was that his name? Of the Go Millot Guide, which was the other guide, not the Michelin Guide. Mm -hmm. Somehow came to our house for dinner. This would have been through connections through my then husband. And I made duck three ways. You know, the I did the the breasts in port wine and I made the skin crackly and did that separately and the thighs were in breadcrumbs and then a sauce and then I knocked myself I made this whole meal I mean I I didn't even think about it at the time but kind of de Gaulle of trying to you know cook for somebody who rates food in all over the world for a living wow. I think I did okay I think I passed I passed now you know if Jacques Pepin were to come to dinner I'd be much more relaxed about Let's good, clean, simple food and have it done well. Yes. But I remember myself just, just in, a, in, a, in a flurry of parsley trying to get this thing made. But I did learn to cook. I did learn the basics. I learned about proportion. I learned about depth of flavor. I learned that I had a palate. I learned that when we go out to eat, which was often... I could experiment with what I ordered and not the same old, same old and see, well, how can I make that? How can I improve that? And I also became, and maybe this was just genetically going to happen. I was a beanpole as a kid. I mean, you can go back to the hunger strike when I was four. Mm -hmm. <laughs> also <laughs> kind of genetically long and skinny as a rail. And I guess it was going to happen anyway, but I also started to become put on weight in the way that meant that I occupied more space on this planet. And I felt like I was, I felt like I was more present. Metaphorically as well as, yeah. Metaphor, yeah, exactly. I just, I wasn't going to, like a strong wind wasn't going to blow me away. I, I developed a voice. I began to sing and I'll go out for roles where you actually could sing. I, I put my, I didn't put my humor or my observations under a bushel, you know, I, because I just, I became much more of myself and cooking and serving food to people, you know, became part of that. And eating, eating became part of that. Mm -hmm. um, I always uh, round out the conversations that we have about food with a particular question. Uh, if there's one specific memory, evocative memory from your childhood, from when you were very young, uh, that brings up uh, something in you that says, oh, this is where I was then, uh, this is a moment that I cherish forever, or something that you return to as an adult, uh, a moment that you go back to and do again, uh, create again, uh, what would that be? So many are flashing through my mind, and you didn't ask me this question, we didn't prepare for this. No. No, for this podcast at all, but something that jumps out is we had rented a house one summer and my son Aaron was maybe eight years old and we were bike riding and I hit a stump and I went flying. 
Mm-hmm. And I scraped my arm and my leg, and, I, and we had to walk the bike. And he was, you know, he got quite shaken. We walked the bikes back to the house, and he said, you know, go lie down. He brought me a little, like, cold compress from my head. He was eight. And then he wanted to make me poached eggs. Oh. And, which is kind of like a, when you're sick in bed, mom will make you poached eggs on toast. Yeah. Kind of, like I would make for him. Like my mom, bless her heart, would make that. Poached eggs on toast, she could do. Mm-hmm. And so it was that moment of, I know how to comfort you, mom. It's going to be with food. And I was so, I was so touched. A little kid, you know, bringing in the little yeah. tray like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That. And, and I also remember mom being, it might have been Mother's Day, and dad trying to make a meal for her. Oh. My father, again, no relationship to the kitchen. But I remember the the love and the effort and the, how the high stakes were for him to get it right, you know, because the food was going to be the, the expression of love and care. I remember that. But I also remember my grandmother, Rose, who was a very good cook. And my dad used to complain to my mother when they were first married. This is story is, is I, I have heard this story. I was not alive at the time. Where dad would say to my mother, Marilyn, my mother makes the best sweet and sour stuffed cabbage rolls. Why would you make them? Make them for me. And my mother tried and she tried and she tried. And my father said, oh, no, 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 this is not it. They're good, but this is not it. So my grandmother Rose said to Marilyn, I'm going to come over. I'm going to make them tonight. And she made them and she purposely left out two key ingredients. Mm-hmm. So dad, dad eats his mother's sweet and sour stuff, cabbage rolls, and goes, oh, you know what? Marilyn, I like yours better. <laughs> and that was my grandmother's, the wisdom. Wow. That's yeah, really, really The wisdom of, you know, that, you should. Quite wonderful. Yeah. Really wonderful. I mean, uh, uh, she, was, she was like that. It's just that, you right. know. Right. But the husband and the wife, not the mother-in-law. You know? Right. So, so, which is also really what, what's wonderful about your bringing up this memory is, is it's not necessarily a memory of yours, but it's a family memory that we all carry throughout yeah. our lives. And, and it feels like it's ours because yeah. it's been implanted somewhere along the line in the stories that we tell around the table. Right. You know? and, it goes, and it goes to character and it goes to the personalities of the yeah. people who are no longer with us. My grandfather, by the way, Morris, Rose's husband, my dad set my grandfather up in business because he had been a butcher in Canada and then he was much, much older. He didn't have any work and he wanted something to do and he wanted to earn a buck. My dad bought him a little free, a little standing restaurant, a drive-through, a little drive-through restaurant called the King Burger, the King Burger. You drive through, you order, you can order at the window. I don't think there was a speaker. You order at the window, you could have a hamburger, you could have uh, French fries, you could have corned beef on a bun, and the corned beef was pre-packaged, and you just put it in a boiling water till it heated up, mm-hmm. cut open the package. But my brother and I worked at the King Burger when we were very young, like 13 and 11, working the deep fat fryer. So <laughs> illegal, completely. But the place only held three people. You know, It was that small a place. Sometimes there was a person in there with us, and sometimes Grandpa would say, I'll be back in an hour. He was going to go, yeah, place, yeah, yeah. Got to go place a bed at the track, you know, on a horse. Yep. So 
So that so there was the Kingburger. So the people, somebody came along to him and said, "Hey, we would like to buy out the Kingburger. We're gonna there's a new franchise coming. Would you like to be part owner of this new franchise? It's called McDonald's." And my grandfather said, "Nah, I'm gonna stick with the Kingburger." <laughs> if only, right? <laughs> oh well, Joanna, thank you so much. This has been a, a Valentine surprise and a and a wonderful, wonderful way of uh, celebrating Our- other. I wanted to ask you a million questions because well, you were literally in a restaurant. Well, we have we have a couple of minutes. What, uh, All right, a couple of minutes. What question? You, yeah. you grew up in the Eat Well Cafe where we have been. We've yeah. been to the Eat Well Cafe. Yeah. What was it like being a kid in your dad's restaurant? It was a uh, an experience that was so kind of multifaceted because it was a combination of, first of all, it was the family business. Uh, it was something that I had been exposed to from the time uh, as early as I can remember, because my father would work uh, uh, alternate shifts with one of my uncles. So my dad would work the morning shift one week, the evening shift one week. And in the week where he worked the evening shift, we would eat at the restaurant. My, that is, my mother and I would go to the restaurant, and we'd sit and we'd have dinner. Uh, and And then when I got older, I started working in the restaurant. Uh, but the earlier memories were of having this just incredible palette available to me where I could sit down and I didn't even have to look at the menu because I knew what the food was. Uh, and it was basically simple, you know, direct all-American food, but everything was fresh. Uh, the cook came in at five o'clock in the morning. He made the pies. He made the cakes. He made the cobblers. He made the puddings. Um and the short orders for lunch, the Salisbury steaks, the whatever was on the prefix lunch. Uh, and my my dad butchered the meat uh, yes. so that all the meat was, everything was fresh. He cut the steaks. He cut the chuck for the hamburger. Uh, the liver was used in the, you know, liver and onions. Uh, you know, the chicken livers that came from the abattoir across the street behind the restaurant. So there was a, just a, 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 a cornucopia of available but was your relationship with your dad different when you were working for him in the restaurant than he was at home? It's difficult to tell because my dad was very much a sphinx. Uh, he was very quiet uh, when he came home from a hard day's work. And he'd been working from the time he was a young boy, had left school when he was very young. This is in in uh, a Greek village in Turkey uh, and was actually sent away from home when he was 13 to work in a bakery in Romania with his uncle uh, because they couldn't afford to keep all the kids at home. Mm-hmm. So my dad had been working from the time he was, but literally working full time, not mm-hmm. part-time job. You know? uh, and so when he came home, he just wanted to sit, read his paper, read a magazine, dinner at five o'clock, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we ate in a very tiny kind of kitchen that basically sat four people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, when we sat around the table, we talked about the the food, mm-hmm. talk about current events. Um, my, although my dad was very conversant in it because he read, he was a reader. Um, so the 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 juxtaposition of what was what it was like at home, which was sort of quiet, and also there was a lot of tension between my mom and dad uh, at the dinner table. My mother was always kind of on tenterhooks about whether the food was prepared properly. Uh, The only comment my father would make about the food would be too much salt or not enough salt. Um, uh, Whereas at the restaurant, 
the the choices were endless. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a kind of freedom. I I had the run of the place. I mm-hmm. could go back in the kitchen and look and see what was going on. And then when I started working there, uh, I could operate the dishwashing machine. Uh, it, it was a kind of fantastic way of growing up around food in the restaurant. But that stayed with you to the extent that let's say let's say the relationship with your father, which we won't go into now, was yeah. was fraught and yeah. and thorny. But yeah. you yeah. still. You love cooking. You make dinner. Ladies and gentlemen, this man makes dinner for us every night. And if it's a party, I do the cooking and he's my sous chef. But ladies, this guy makes dinner every night. You love it. You put effort into it. You get inventive with it. You know, it, it working that hard as a young kid under the watchful eye of your yeah, yeah. withholding father, all that psychological stuff did not dim your your fascination and your your joy in actual food preparation and your and it's passed on to your kids by the way well and i i have to give my mother some credit here because at home when i was helping her and my dad wasn't around she was very inventive in terms of the way she enlisted her kids in the preparation and also in the post kind of scullery part of dinner you know my mom would do things like after dinner we had to clear the table we had to wash the dishes uh, but she would make it a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was about, there was a timer. And at the end of the timer, a bomb would go off. Now, that's not, you know, I know, I know, that's a little strange. But uh, <laughs> but it made it exciting for a kid. Yeah. And, yeah. and she would do things like, you know, uh, uh, instead of talking to each other, we would sing as if we were in an opera. Oh, that's uh, great. Uh, yeah, it was great fun with her. Uh, yeah. So so there was that part of it that made, I think that's what made the enjoyment of, of or, and continuing to be able to, you know, prepare food and not resent it. The, the last thing I wanted to do was to be in my dad's business, mm-hmm. because by then I knew in my late teens, early 20s, that I wanted to be an actor. But uh, early on, my dad made it very clear he wanted me to take over the restaurant and I was having none of it. Uh, but when I got out of the house and got to school and started living on my own i was preparing my own food and i was i was i had been trained for it by both being mm-hmm. in the restaurant and also my mom cooking at home and mm-hmm. a lot of the recipes that i made for myself when i was in uh, college and in graduate school were a lot of the greek recipes that my mom made at home we ate greek at home all american in the restaurant yeah yeah well we we get the benefit we in this household yeah we meet and our kids and grandkids get the benefit of of both because the the requests that come in when all the grandkids are here are for Papu's lentil soup and also Uralikia right and Avgalemino av yep. and they make spanakopita you know there's no meal complete no big family gathering uh, complete without it and it, it's it's culturally it is very ingrained in in the kids and that's you know and in the grandchildren and in the grandchildren yeah that's all of them by the way, yeah. Yeah. your son as well, who who yeah. loves to cook, uh, and his wife, and they let uh, their son uh, help in the kitchen. Uh, when we have yeah. the grandchildren over, they help us. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful, extraordinary kind of uh, uh, bonding, yeah. cultural experience, uh, human experience, emotional experience, everything that food does. Food is love. Yep. We should remember that food is love. Exactly. You know? exactly. So with that message... Yeah. I would like to thank my dear, lovely wife, Joanna Gleason, yeah, thank you. for for this this uh, very illuminating and uh, interesting uh, and 
just wonderful conversation. Happy well, Valentine's Day, my love. Happy Valentine's Day. What, what's for dinner, by the way? Uh, <laughs> I haven't figured it out yet. And by the way, we all wish you out there a very happy Valentine's Day as well. Thank you.